Remember that Luke was not one of the original disciples of Jesus. He's not writing this account with uh, real-time or first-hand personal experience. Luke was likely a Gentile. And he was writing it as someone who became absolutely convinced of the legitimacy of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Luke even records a prologue to his gospel account where he says that he had set out to make this careful investigations of the events involving Jesus. He sought out eyewitness, uh, eyewitnesses and testimony in order that we may know the truth. Also remember that Luke wrote a two-part series. The Gospel of Luke being part one and the book of the Acts of the Apostles being part two, both written by Luke. And part one, the account of the gospel, Luke follows Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection. And part two follows Jesus' movement as the Spirit of God in the acts of his people, in the lives of his apostles, of, of the disciples, as they spread the message of the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world. And we know that Luke was, at least with Paul, he was a partner with Paul in um, Paul's ministry because Paul mentions Luke a few times in his own writings. Well, today we're going to bridge the gap between part one, the gospel account according to Luke, and part two, the book of Acts. But before we do, let us pray. God, though the things of this world wither and fall, your word endures forever. Your word spans from before the dawn of creation and will continue to stand forevermore. As we find ourselves in a world captivated by sensationalism, sound bites, tweets, and opinion-based rhetoric, may we come to you, the author of life, for your divine truth and wisdom. Bless us now in the reading, hearing, and study of your holy word. Amen. Last week was Easter Sunday, and we looked at the women's account of the empty tomb and how when they ran back to tell the apostles, the apostles believed them right away. Now, that's, that's not what happens. The apostles doubted. They didn't believe what they were hearing, though Luke records that Peter, Peter must have hoped that it was true because he ran to the tomb to see with his own eyes whether it was true or not, and it was. Well, after that scene, at the, this is getting towards the end of Luke, it's the last chapter of Luke, Jesus appears to two of Jesus' disciples on a road as they're traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a town about seven miles away. And the two disciples didn't realize at first that they were talking to Jesus. They were talking about the events of the day and, and what was happening in Jerusalem at that time. They were talking about what happened to Jesus, but they didn't know that they were talking to Jesus. And it says that Jesus began to teach them what the scriptures had been saying about him. You know, from the time of Moses all the way through the prophets. And it wasn't until they were dining with him later when Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them that their eyes were opened and they realized, they recognized they were with Jesus. And then he vanished from their sight. Well, after this encounter, the two disciples ran back to Jerusalem to find the other disciples and they told them, the Lord has risen 
And then they told him about their encounter with Jesus. And I want to pick up the story here. This is at the very end of the gospel of, according to Luke. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 53. And I don't have this on the screen, so just, just use your imaginations, follow along, paint a picture in your mind. Because while they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually uh, in the temple blessing God. That ends the gospel account of Luke. So let's bridge the gap and pick up the story in Acts. This is is our our lesson for today. Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. Luke continues, in my first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem. But to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, those last 47 days for the disciples, from, from what we just read, backing 47 days up, have probably been a complete emotional roller coaster. Now, I say 47 days because Luke informs us that Jesus appeared to them over the course of 40 days. Well, then back up seven more days for the, the, the week of Holy Week, you know, which began on Palm Sunday with Jesus entering Jerusalem to the praise of his disciples, followed by the next few days of tense encounters with the temple leaders, followed by the Passover meal on Thursday and the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, the silence and sadness of Friday night and Saturday, and then the empty tomb on Sunday. Then for 40 days, Jesus appeared to them in different times, different ways. Some of these occurrences are recorded in more detail, and some aren't. In 1 Corinthians, Paul even mentions of a time when Jesus appeared to 500 people. And we see here in Acts chapter 1 that one of the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples was to remain in Jerusalem, to stay there, and to wait for the promise of the Father, which would be the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we celebrate on the day of Pentecost. But try not to jump there in your minds just yet. That's, that's Acts chapter 2. Let's stay in Acts chapter 1 with where we are right now. Because the disciples don't have the full details yet. They don't know what's in store for them. They don't know what's ahead of them. In fact, they themselves are still trying to figure things out right then. We see their response in, in verse 6. You know, they said, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time? When you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time? Is this what's about to happen? It gives us a little insight into the thinking of the disciples. We see that, you know, their focus still appears to be on the earthly, on the immediate, on the kingdoms of this world. Lord, is it time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel right here? They were focused on the worldly kingdom and for changes that would happen that would change their lives for the better right then. They wanted Jesus to rise up to be the ruler of Israel, to subvert the power of Rome, and to bring glory and, and authority and influence to Israel. That they would be victorious and prosperous once again. They would be the winning team, no longer the underdog. No more would they have to be subjugated to Rome or even the, the Jewish leaders that, the, uh, that were given authority by the Romans. Surely they hoped that Jesus had come at this time to right the ship, to bring power and glory back to God and to God's people right then and there. But Jesus replied to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as he said this, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
I wonder how the disciples reacted to that answer. Here they were thinking, things are about to change. Things are about to happen. We're about to, be, we're about to get a promotion here. Things are going to go great from here on out. Jesus is back. They tried to kill him. They couldn't. He's resurrected. He's back. He's going to set everything right now. And Jesus said, that's maybe not my plan right now. Instead, Jesus says, yep, no, not quite. Y'all don't get to know the whole plan. That's for God. But I do have a job for you. He doesn't leave them completely empty-handed. He gives them a responsibility. And that is that they would be his witnesses. And then he leaves. But being the disciples then, and, and this emotional roller coaster that they've been on for the last, you know, 47 days or so, I just imagine the disciples being like, wait, what? And then the text goes on to tell us, it says, while they're just kind of gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. And these men said, men of Galilee, why do you stand there just looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The disciples are just kind of standing there, looking into the sky, wondering what just happened. Maybe a little confused. Maybe also in awe. You know, that'd be pretty, pretty awesome sight. But they don't really seem sure what to do. And these two messengers appear and they say, guys, why are you just standing there? Why are you just standing there? And I'm sure the disciples had lots of questions. <laughs> like, let's, let's get some more information about this, Jesus. Can you tell us a little more? What's the plan? Where are we going? What's this going to look like? How's this going to end? They don't get any of those questions answered. Their responsibility in that moment was to walk by faith. The disciples found themselves in a transitional moment in time. And Luke, again, he even emphasizes this pivotal transition in the fact that he split the whole story right at this time. From the end of the gospel according to Luke in chapter 24, and we pick up in Acts chapter 1, there's the split, and now this is part two. There is a transition that takes place, a significant one. And I think that if we were to put ourselves in the position of the disciples, after Jesus ascended into heaven, we would probably look at each other and say, so now what? We've been following Jesus around for three years. We've listened to his teachings. We've seen his miracles. We have been convinced. We, we saw him die on a cross. We've seen him resurrected. And now he's gone again. Now what? I think that question, now what, is one that we may find ourselves asking in our own lives when significant life events happen some of these events we see coming you know years years in the making some are more expected sometimes we don't even know we're in these moments until we're right in the middle of them some of these life events are kind of positive and exciting you know like a butterfly hatching or whatever but some are more difficult 
and challenging. Sometimes we ask that question with a bit of hope. You know, now what? What's next? Sometimes we ask it with tears in our eyes. Now what? What do I do now? You know, we're, fast, we're quickly approaching the, uh, the end of the school year. And for our high school seniors who are about to graduate, you've probably been anticipating this moment for about 12 years, give or take. I mean, I remember when I was in the sixth grade, I remember thinking this vividly. I was sitting in class, and I'm thinking, I still have six years of this. And then you get to your senior year, like, wow, it's here. <laughs> i got to figure some things out. There's, there's times for you seniors when it's probably gone by very slowly. But probably more recently, it has seemed to fly by a little more quickly. And you're going to be graduating in about a month. And whether you know exactly what your, you know, whole plan is or not, either way, you're going to find yourselves in a new chapter in your life. And after your last day of high school, you might find yourself asking, all right, so now what? Parents of graduates, it's a little different. For parents whose kids are graduating, you know, these kids that you've spent almost every day of their lives with for the last 18 or so years, and as they're about to, to head off and start this new chapter in their own lives, to chart their course, that also means that it kind of begins a new chapter in your own lives. We even, we even have a term for it, empty nester, Right? So you may find yourselves asking the same question, but with a little bit different perspective. So now what? I remember after um, our first child, Ella, was born, you know, in the hospital, you put her in the car seat, and they make you tighten it up so tight, and you're like, oh, that's going to hurt her. But no, they make you tighten her up, and you put her in the car, and you take her home. And I remember when we were taking her out of the car, you know, she was sleeping so peacefully, so sweet, and you're like, oh. How adorable. And so we take her out of the car and we took her to the room that we had prepared. You know, this, this is, you know, nine months in the making, give or take. And so we took her to the room and sat her down. She's, she's still sleeping, still in her car seat and just kind of stepped back. I kind of remember thinking, all right, so now what? <laughs> they didn't train me for this. But I knew that life would forever be different. You know, from that moment forward, life would forever be different. I didn't know exactly how so, but I knew it would be different. Now, of course, those are just a few examples. There's many others. You know, when you, when you graduate from college, well, so now what? <laughs> Career, family, what? After a marriage ceremony, entering into a life with someone, so now what? Starting a new job. Or maybe after you've lost your job, you may come home and think, Maybe after a life-changing medical diagnosis. Maybe after the loss of a loved one. The one constant in life is change. And as we move ever forward through our lives and through time, we face, we face changes, both you know, good and bad. That's just what life brings. And the disciples found themselves in, a, in their own time of transition and change. So I ask, what can we glean from this passage where the disciples have found themselves facing this new chapter in their lives, what can we learn from it for our lives? What can we observe? 
So the first thing that um, we can observe is that we can know that God is ever before us. Meaning that there is no moment in time that we arrive at where God is not already there to meet us and with us. We do not go through any moment in time without the presence of God. This idea, it also kind of connects and conveys with the doctrine of divine providence. And I'm going to connect this with the second, uh, second point. That all things are leading toward the fulfillment of God's ultimate purposes for re- redemption and restoration. As we reflect on this passage in Acts, we see that God is working out his greater plan of salvation and redemption. The, the disciples don't understand it. Again, the, the disciples, they kind of, their lens is just what they can observe right around them. They're thinking still kind of in worldly terms, but God is moving. God is acting. And as we'll, you know, as you read into Acts chapter 2, in the events of Pentecost, God is doing something. But the disciples may be a little confused about what that is. There is a great redemptive plan unfolding in which God will right all the wrongs. There's an often quoted verse, Romans 8.28, and I think I, yep, I did put it on the screen. It says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. This is a, a verse in Romans that's sometimes troubling when people misuse it or misunderstand it to mean that, wait, so we know that all things, what about the bad things? Does God cause tragedy and evil things to happen and then considers them good? As in, God wanted this bad thing to happen? It's not really what Paul is saying here. You have to take this verse, again, we talk about taking verses in context. And if you look a little before it, and if you even read after it, you get a better, better picture of what Paul is saying. Before it, Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to, re- to be revealed to us. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we are saved. Now hope is that, or now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But what we hope for, what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And I'm skip down. So this next section occurs just after that verse. Um, the verse that says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Paul continues, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you notice there, what Paul does is he actually acknowledges the tragedy and the pain and the suffering that comes in life. 
And he talks about the groanings of our spirit, like labor pains, the labor pains of life. He also affirms the hardships, the distresses, the famines, the poverty, the dangers, the violence of this world. But he says that all of that, or actually none of that, has the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because God is working a much bigger plan. God is working to restore and to bring, out, uh, bring about our adoption, our redemption, our salvation, and that is what our hope is in. When we face tragedy, when we face these difficulties and obstacles, may we find our hope in God's ultimate plan for redemption and restoration. So just to recap so far, two points so far, that we ought to know that God is ever before us. We never arrive at a situation or a change or a point in life where God is not already there with us. And two, that no matter what circumstance we are facing, our hope is in God's power and plan to redeem and to restore. The third thing, sometimes simply waiting is God's plan for the immediate probably sounds a little bit like an oxymoron to say simply waiting. Waiting's not always that simple, right? Waiting's sometimes one of the hardest things we do. Especially, though, if there's a big life circumstance, some situation. We don't want to wait. We want to get through it. We want to get past it. We want to we know about it. We want to figure it out. We want, we want some kind of resolve. We want resolution there. We don't like waiting in those moments. But in our text today, Jesus told his disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. And the Bible repeatedly encourages us to wait on the Lord. I, I, there's a lot of them. You can probably Google, you know, waiting for the Lord in the Bible and come up with a lot. But I just picked a few out. Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage Wait for the Lord. Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. And this last one from Isaiah chapter 40, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not be faint. Sometimes God calls us to wait, to trust. But waiting is not necessarily the same thing as doing nothing, which is my fourth and final point here. We always have work to do. We always have a responsibility to do. Until our baptisms are complete and Jesus calls us home, we always have a call and a responsibility that God calls us to, and Christ calls us to trust in him, to be his disciples, to walk in faith, and to love one another. Our job right now and always is ultimately to love God and to love others, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the situation, no matter what the time of change, that, that is constant, that we love God, that we love others, and that we be Christ's witnesses 
to the world. That's what Jesus tells his disciples, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That, that's your job. That's your role. God's in charge of everything else. Your role right now is to focus on being my witnesses, sharing this gospel message, loving and serving God and loving and serving one another. We don't have to know the end of the story of our lives to live out our calling right here and now. Jesus didn't give the disciples every facet of information. He didn't unveil the plan. He didn't you know, give them any previews or spoilers in that. He invited them to participate in his ministry in the world by being his witnesses. So we may face situations where maybe kind of like the disciples, we feel a little lost. Feel like, like we don't have all the answers. We don't know what the future holds, and that's okay. Because no matter where we are, what we're going through, we are to be God's witnesses right now in the present. Another little interesting fact. Anybody know what happens right after this section, before Pentecost? There's something else that happens at the end of Acts chapter 1. As the disciples are waiting. Again, they're not doing nothing. There is stuff to do. So what did the disciples do next? Well, just going to tell you, it's, it's not anything glamorous. All right? It's actually maybe a little Presbyterian. Remember, they're down one apostle. The, the, Judas is no longer among the twelve. They have eleven. They have to fill out their committee, so to say. And so they, they get together. You know, they kind of form their committee meeting and accept nominations. And they elect the twelfth. They're not doing nothing. They're preparing themselves to be God's witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the, word, uh, ends of the earth. So that, that's kind of my silly but also kind of serious plug um, to say that our nominating committee will start working next month to fill a number of elder spots and deacon spots and even an associate pastor search committee. So lots of things going on. Uh, so we need a few willing harps to uh, step forward, but more on that later. But there are going to be times in life when we say, so now what? That question might be a little different depending on the circumstance, but so now what? But let us keep in mind that God is ever before us. We will never experience a time when God is not already there with us. And God is working out his ultimate promises for redemption and restoration. That is our comfort and our hope no matter what, no matter what we're facing. And when we don't know what is next, sometimes we're called to simply wait on the Lord. But in waiting on the Lord, it doesn't mean we do nothing. We always have work to do for the kingdom of God here and now. So let us do that. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the witness of so many who have gone before us. We thank you for the apostles and the disciples. We thank you for those faithful who gave their lives for the faith. We thank you for leaders who rose up throughout our church history, who have been examples, who have been uh, faithful to live out your calling. Lord, in times of transition and change, we need you. We always need you. And Lord, give us perspective. 
know that we are never alone, that you are always before us. And Lord, that you are working out a greater plan in which we have the opportunity to partake in, to partner with you in. Lord, help us in seasons when we are called to wait, and it's so difficult, but help us. Lord, may we find strength just sitting in your presence, trusting in you, and seek out ways in which we can, can continue to be your witnesses in all the earth. We pray for those in our congregation in need of prayer.